The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. For over 50 years, a sign was hung in Fayetteville, West Virginia. It stated, On Christmas Eve 1945, our home was set afire and five of our children, ages 5 through 14, kidnapped. The officials blamed defective wiring although the lights were still burning after the fire started. The official report stated that the children had died in the fire. However, no bones were found in the residue and there was no smell of burning flesh during or after the fire. What was the motive of the law law officers involved? What did they have to gain for making us suffer all these years of injustice? Why did they lie and why did they force us to accept those lies? You're listening to the Mysterious Bruise Podcast, and tonight we bring you the case of the Sodder Children. Welcome to a deep, dark, dank, cold basement. It is cold. Somewhere in the bowels of Georgia. Just open the damn things. <laughs> we're not drinking, we're eating. <laughs> we bring you Lay's Potato Chips, now sponsor of Mysterious Brews. I'm hungry. I wish that was true. We have no sponsors. If you're a small business... And you're one of our devout listeners. Send us a we plug. Will, yeah, we will love. We'll sponsor the fuck out of. We will plug the hell out of you. Yes, we'll take free samples and tell them it's the best shit we've ever tried. Even if it's Aunt Betty's butt cream, It'll be the best damn butt cream I've ever tried. It is pretty good. I mean, come on. Well, a little salve never hurt anyone. <laughs> <laughs> so how you been there, uh, Slappy? Besides being hungry. I've been good, man. It's close to Christmas holidays. I know it, man. I got five days and then we're done. That's why we're that's why we're covering this. This might even come out after Christmas, but this is a Christmas special case. This has been recommended by several people, but we also had it on our docket. Yeah, numerous people suggested this, but it is just one crazy case. We do not have any new Patreons, but it is Christmas time, so we do not fault anyone for not letting go of a little change, but uh, we do appreciate all of our patrons and all of our lovely, devout listeners. We thank you for recommending this podcast. We thank you for tuning in each week, and we hope as this episode releases that you have had a wonderful holiday season. And you have been able to enjoy your family as much as possible because we all know that there are certain family outings and holidays that you dread. (laughs) And 
as my wife once said, we make sure that when we go to these holiday outings that we have plenty of liquor and booze. (laughs) Helps us get through the uh, questionable things that Uncle Rico brings up at the Christmas table. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Not a whole lot of uh, preamble here. We're going to dive into it, ladies and gentlemen, since this is a Christmas special. So we're going... Well, we're drinking, if you're wondering, we're drinking Sierra Nevada Celebration Ale, which is their Christmas ale every year. And it is quite tasty. It, it's been one of my go-tos every Christmas for as long as I can remember, so... We have not covered... I think this is our first case from West Virginia. I believe it is. So we may be uh, incorrect, but... Mr. Ball, I'm sure you're on top of it, so I don't think hammer I don't it think out. We're incorrect. I think we're absolutely on the on the on the ball on this one. So, as Coach alluded to in the opening, on Christmas Eve, December 24th, 1945, a fire destroyed the Sutter family home in Fayetteville, West Virginia. At the time, it was occupied by George Sutter, his wife Jenny, and nine of their ten children. During the fire, George, Jenny, and four of the nine children escaped. The bodies of the other five children have never been found. The Sodders believed for the rest of their lives that the five missing children survived. They never rebuilt their house. Instead, converted the site to a memorial garden to their lost children. In the 1950s, they came to doubt that the children had perished and put up a billboard at the site along State Route 16 with pictures of the five offering a reward for information that would bring closure to the case. It remained up until shortly after Jenny Sauter's death in 1989. Yeah, so about 50 years, just about 45 years, 50 years. In support of their belief that the children had survived, the Sauters have pointed to a number of unusual circumstances before and during the fire. George disputed the fire department's findings that the blaze was an electrical fire He noted that he had recently had the house rewired and inspected. He and his wife suspected arson, leading to theories that the children had been taken by the Sicilian Mafia, perhaps in retaliation for George's outspoken criticism of Benito Mussolini and the fascist government of native Italy. And my question is, is how the fuck would the fire department know if it was electrical, considering the fact that the fire department was located two and a half miles away and did not arrive on site until seven hours after they were notified that there was a fire. Seven hours. They may have been eating Christmas yams. I don't know. That's a long time, though. I will give you that. State and federal efforts to investigate the case in the early 1950s yielded no new information. The family did, however, later receive what may have been a picture of one of the boys as an adult during the 1960s. Their one surviving daughter, along with their grandchildren, have continued to publicize this case in the 21st century in online forums and online media. Now, George was born with the name Jejorio. <laughs> That's like me in the opening, bro. I couldn't get I couldn't Giorgio Sodu. In Tula, Sardinia, Italy, in 1895. He immigrated to the United States 13 years later with an older brother who went back home as soon as both he and George had cleared customs at Ellis Island. 
for the rest of his life. Just so he just turned right back around. Wow. For the rest of his life, George, as he came to be known, would not talk much about why he had left his native Italy. George eventually found work on the railroads in Pennsylvania, carrying water and other supplies to workers. After a few years, he took more permanent work as a driver in Smithers, West Virginia. After a few more years, he started his own trucking company, at first hauling field dirt to construction sites and later hauling coal that was mined in the region. Jenny Cipriani, a storekeeper's daughter in Smithers, who had also immigrated from Italy in her childhood, became George's wife. The couple eventually settled outside Fayetteville, which had a large population of Italian immigrants in a two-story timber frame house two miles north of town. In 1923, they had the first of their ten children. George's business prospered, and they became, quote, one of the most respective middle-class families around, end quote. However, George had strong opinions about many subjects and was not shy about expressing them, sometimes alienating people. In particular, his strident opposition to the Italian dictator Benito Mussolini had led to some strong arguments with other members of the Italian immigrant community. Yeah, believe it or not, in West Virginia, there was a pretty large population of Italian immigrants. I didn't know that until I started researching this, and that I don't know why, but it surprised me. The last of the Sodder children, Sylvia, was born in 1943. By then, their second oldest son, Joe, had left home to serve in the military during World War II. The following year, Mussolini was deposed and ex- executed. George's criticism of the late dictator had left some hard feelings. In October 1945, a visiting life insurance salesman, after being rebuffed, warned George that his house, quote, would go up in smoke and your children are going to be destroyed, end quote. Attributing this all to the, quote, dirty remarks you have been making about Mussolini, end quote. Another visitor to the house, ostensibly seeking work, took the occasion to go around to the back and warned George that a pair of fuse boxes would, quote, cause a fire someday, end quote. George was extremely puzzled by this observation since he had just had the house rewired with an electrical stove and the local electric company had said afterwards that it was safe. In the weeks before Christmas that year, George's older son had also noticed a strange car parked along the main highway through town its occupants, watching the younger Sauter children as they returned from school. So Christmas Eve, 1945. The Sauters had celebrated uh, Christmas that day, and Marion, the oldest daughter, had been working at a dime store in downtown Fayetteville. She surprised three of her younger sisters, Martha, 12, Jenny, 8, and Betty, 5, with new toys that she had bought for them as gifts. The younger children were so excited that they asked their mother if they could stay up past their bedtime what would have been extremely late, according to family members. At 10 p.m., Jenny told them that they could stay up just a little later as long as the two oldest boys, who were still awake, 14-year-old Maurice and 9-year-old Louis, would remember to put the cows in and feed the chickens before going to bed themselves. George and the two oldest boys, John, 23, and George, Jr., 16, who had spent the day working with their father, were already asleep. After reminding the children of those chores, Jenny took Sylvia upstairs with her and went to bed. And Sylvia was two at the time. The telephone rang at 12.30 a.m., waking Jenny, and she went downstairs to answer it. 
The caller was a woman whose voice she did not recognize, asking for a name she was not familiar with, with the sound of laughter and clinking glasses in the black background. Jenny told the caller she had reached a wrong number, later recalling the woman's, quote, weird laugh. Jenny hung up and returned to bed. As she did, she noticed that the lights were still on and the curtains were not drawn, two things the children normally attended to when they stayed up later than their parents. Marion had fallen asleep on the living room couch, so Jenny assumed the other children who had stayed up later had gone back up to the attic where they slept. She closed the curtains, turned out the lights, and returned to bed. At approximately 1 a.m., Jenny was again awakened by a sound of an object hitting the house's roof with a loud bang, then a rolling noise. That was Santa Claus, just saying. Could have been. After hearing nothing further, she went back to sleep. After another half hour, she woke up again, this time smelling smoke. When she got up, she found that the room George used for his office was on fire around the telephone line and fuse box. Jenny woke him, and he in turn woke his older sons. Both Jenny and George and four of their children, Marion, Sylvia, John, and George Jr., escaped the house. They frantically yelled to the children upstairs but heard no response. They could not go up there as the stairway itself was already in flames. John said in his first police interview after the fire that he went up to the attic to alert his siblings sleeping there, though he later changed this story to say that he only called up there and did not actually see them. Efforts to find and rescue the children were unexpectedly complicated. The phone did not work, so Marion had to run to a neighbor's house to call the fire department. A driver on the nearby road had also seen the flames and called from a nearby tavern. They too were unsuccessful either because they could not reach the operator or because the phones were turned out to have been broken. Either the neighbor or the passing motorist was eventually successful in reaching the fire department from another phone in the center of town. George, barefooted this time, climbed the wall and broke open an attic window, cutting his arm in the process. He and his sons intended to use a ladder to the attic to rescue the other children, but it was not in its usual spot resting against the house and could not, buy, could not be found anywhere nearby. It was gone. A water barrel that could have been used to extinguish, extinguish the fire was frozen solid. George then tried to pull both of the trucks he used in his business to the house and use them to climb to the attic window, but neither of them would start despite having worked perfectly the previous day. Maybe someone been messing with them. Yes, well, it sounds like. Frustrated, the Sodders who had escaped had no choice but to watch the house burn down and collapse over the next 45 minutes. They assumed the other five children had perished in the blaze. The fire department, low on manpower due to the war and relying on individual firefighters to call each other, did not respond until later that morning. That, though they may have been short-staffed, they may have been counting on one another, but still, seven hours is highly suspicious. Yes. Chief J.F. Morris said the next day that the already slow response was further hampered by his inability to drive the fire truck, requiring that he had to wait until someone who could drive was available. 
How does the chief not know how to drive the damn truck? I was, that was what I was about to say. Even if, if you've never driven a car before in your entire life. I'm getting that fire truck there. It's only two miles. <laughs> probably able to drive a car. Even You might not know the rules of the road. You might not know what a yield sign is. But if you can manage go button, brake button, I mean, you can probably drive a, a, a vehicle two miles. Yes. The firefighters, one of whom was a brother of Jenny's, could not do anything but watch the house burn. By 10 a.m., Morris told the Sodders that they had not found any bones as might have been expected if the other children had been in the house as it burned. According to another account, they did find a few bone fragments and internal organs, but chose not to tell the family. It has also been noted by modern fire professionals that that their search was cursory at best. Nevertheless, Chief Morris believed that the five children unaccounted had died in the fire, suggesting it had not been hot enough to burn their bodies completely. Suggesting that it had been. There, he's saying, that, yes, I'm sorry, it yeah. had been hot enough. Yeah. yeah. I apologize. But there's also a um, contested account about the, bu- the bone fragments being found at that time. Well, if the bone fragments are going to be found... If it's hot enough to burn them completely, I don't think you're finding organs. But what I'm saying, no, 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 I'm saying that the bone fragments are going to be found. What's contested is, are they found that night or are they found when they're... When they, quote, look for them. When they look, they come back and look for them. Now, not long after all of this, the starters, starters, boy, I'm killing it today, boys. Man, you kill it every time, bro. You're going to be in the podcast hall of fame. With my... Devil tongue. <laughs> the Sodders began to rebuild their lives, but they also start to question all of the official findings that the fire department state. They wondered why, if it had been caused by an electrical problem, the family's Christmas lights had remained on throughout the fire's early stages when the power should have been out. Then the Sodders find the ladder that had been missing from the side of the house on the night of the fire at the bottom of an embankment 75 feet away. Hmm. A telephone repairman told the Sodders that the house's phone lines had not been burned through in the fire as they had initially thought, but it had been cut by someone who had been willing and able to climb 14 feet up the pole and reach two feet away from it to do so. Not an easy cat, not an easy task, but not impossible. A man whom neighbors had seen stealing a block and tackle from the property around the time of the fire was identified and arrested. He admitted to the theft and claimed he had been the one who cut the phone line, thinking it was a power line, but denied having anything to do with the fire. However, no record identifying the suspect exists and why he would have wanted to cut any line to the house while stealing a block and tackle has never been explained. Jenny said in 1968 that if he had cut the power line, she and her husband, along with their other four children, would never have been able to make it out of the house. 
Jenny also had trouble accepting Chief Morse's belief that all traces of the children's body had burned completely in the fire. Many of the household appliances had been found still recognizable in the ash, along with fragments of the tin roof. She contrasted the results of the fire with a newspaper account of a similar house fire that she read about the same time that killed a family of seven. Skeletal remains of all victims were reported to have been found in that case. Jenny burned small piles of animal bones to see if they would completely be consumed by the flames. Yeah, she starts, con- yeah, she starts conducting her own experiments to find out the validity of this, and she's going to prove time and time again that it just wasn't hot enough. Right, and it goes even further. She's contacted by a local crematorium employee that states to her that human rebo- human bones remain even after bodies are burned at 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit for two hours, far longer and hotter than the house fire could have been. House fire was approximately 45 minutes long, and there was nothing in that house that would have caused the the temperature to rise that hot. The solder truck's failure to start was also considered. George believed they had been tampered with by perhaps the same man who had stole the block and tackle and cut the phone line. However, one of his son-in-laws told the Charleston Gazette Mail in 2013 that he had come to believe that solder and his sons might have, in their haste to start the truck, flooded the engines. I don't buy that. He's a he owns a trucking company. Well, I also, from what I read, was that the the trucks, the trucks were disabled. They weren't unable to start, which is different. Yeah. You turn the key and you <laughs> won't start. When it's disabled, you turn the key and there's nothing. There's no. Yeah, there's no, nothing. Yeah, yeah, I agree with you. Yeah, there's no sound whatsoever. You just turn in a key and you hear nothing. That's what he heard. He didn't hear a truck trying to rev up and unable to. So he did not flood the truck. Some people have suggested the wrong number phone call to the solder house might also have been someone connected to the fire and the disappearance of the children. Possibly uh, confirming that they were home. Right, that's what I'm thinking. However, supposedly, investigators later located the woman who had made the call. She confirmed it had been a wrong number on her part. But again, she can claim that if she's just trying to make sure. And she could have just been said, look, call this number. Yeah. They don't have to tell her why. Yeah, 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 absolutely. That person could or couldn't, could have inadvertently been involved and not realized it. So as spring approached, the Sodders, as they had said they would, planted flowers in the soil, bulldozed over the house. Jenny tended to it carefully for the rest of her life. However, further developments in early 1946 reinforced the family's belief that the children they were memorializing might, in fact, be alive. Evidence emerged which supported their belief that the fire had not started in the electrical system, and was instead set deliberately. The driver of a bus that passed through Fayetteville late Christmas Eve said he had seen some people throwing balls of fire at the house. A few months later, when the snow had melted, Sylvia found a small, hard, dark green rubber ball-like object in the brush nearby. George, recalling his wife's account of a loud thump on the roof before the fire, said it looked like a quote, pineapple bomb, hand grenade, or some other incendiary device used in combat. 
The family later claimed that the Contrary to the fire marshal's conclusion, the fire had started on the roof, although by then there was no way to prove it. So, yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's exactly what she might have heard was the thumping of a, like a, the pineapple, the pineapple bomb, or perhaps a Molotov cocktail or something of that nature. Other witnesses claimed to have seen the children themselves. One woman who had been watching the fire from the road said she had seen some of them peering out of a passing car while the house was burning. Another woman at a rest stop between Fayetteville and Charleston said she had served them breakfast the next morning and noted the presence of a car with Florida license plates in the rest stop parking lot parking lot as well. Okay, yeah. Chief F.J. Morris is going to tell George to leave the site undisturbed so the state's fire marshal office could conduct a more thorough investigation. However, after four days, George and his wife claimed that they could not bear the site anymore, so they bulldozed five feet of dirt over the site with the intention of converting it to a memorial garden for the lost children. Which, that to me is kind of strange. If you were, you yourself are determined to find your children and you're going to put a billboard up accusing the police officers of wrongdoing and lying and you're going to do all of these things I mean, you were asked not to disturb it so they could do a more thorough investigation, and then you yourself are going to cover it up? That's kind of strange. But also, uh, the local coroner is going to convene an inquest the next day after the fire, uh, which they're going to, the, the, the people involved are going to determine that the fire was an accident caused by quote-unquote faulty wiring. Among the jurors that were involved in that inquest is in fact going to be the man who threatened George at his house, claiming that it would be burned down and his children destroyed in retribution for his anti-Mussolini remarks. So that's two big what-the-fucks on both sides of that argument. You're going to be told not to disturb something so we can investigate more, and you're going to cover it in five feet of dirt. That's very strange. Extremely strange. And then, but then again, you're going to have an inquest involving a man that's made verbal threats to the family. That's fucking strange. Uh, this whole case is full of strange shit. All right. Well, and then the five children are going to be issued death certificates on December 30th. Like before. That's any, less than a week. Yeah. Before anyone's found. The local newspaper is actually going to contradict itself because they're going to claim at the beginning that all the bodies had been found, but later in the same story, we're going to report that only one of the bodies, only part, parts of one body had been recovered. That is pretty crazy. And just to finish that up, it's also just noted that George and Jenny were too grief-stricken to attend the funeral, although the surviving children did. So they are going to have a funeral for these five children, even though they themselves are going to believe that they did not perish in this fire. That's, I mean, that's odd, too. Why have a funeral so soon? If you are questioning whether so or not they're there. We're talking Christmas Eve, 1945. And before New Year's Eve, they're buried. Uh, and death Well, not yeah, buried, but death for, certificates. Well, yeah. Before New Year's, death certificates are issued. Before... Uh, the death certificates are issued. You're going to bury the, the site that they asked you not to so they can conduct a full investigation. 
And then on January 2nd, you're going to have a funeral for these kids. But you yourself do not believe that they perished in this fire. George and Jenny are going to go to their graves believing that these children were alive. Yeah. So the Sodders hired a private investigator named C.C. Tinsley from the nearby town of Golly Bridge. (laughs) Golly? Golly Bridge, man. So Mr. Tinsley learns that the insurance salesman who had threatened them with a fire a year before over George's anti-Mussolini statements had been on the coroner's jury that ruled the fire an accident and told this to the Sodders. He also learned of rumors around Fayetteville that despite the report to the Sodders that no remains had been found in the ashes, Morris had found a heart which he later packed into a metal box and secretly buried. I mean, explain that shit. (laughs) Supposedly, Morris had confessed to a local minister who confirmed this to George. George and Tinsley went to Morris and confronted him with this. Morris agreed to show the two where he had buried this metal box, and they dug it up. They took what they found inside the box to a local funeral director. Guess what it was? It was not a human heart. It was a fresh beef liver. That had never been exposed to fire. And I'm assuming beef liver is going to be quite larger than a human child's heart. Quite. Like. Significantly larger. What the fuck is he doing that for? He's going to make some claim that he did it just to ease the worries of the, the, the parents. But what? How? How are you going to bury a big-ass beef liver, think it's going to make them feel better? What in the name of Sam Hill? Like, <laughs> Well, he does later confess that the liver had indeed not come from the fire. He supposedly placed it there, like you said. Well, it was beef liver anyway. Well, so even if it did come from the fire, well, there was a cow in the house. <laughs> yeah. And the only thing that was left was a liver. Yeah. Everything else burned up. That'd make it even stranger if you ask me. (laughs) He confessed it wasn't from the fire. Well, no shit. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So there's several, several oddities and questions that surround this case. One, there were no bones, no remains. Experts later told the Sodders the short fire never burned hot enough to completely destroy bone. Even some household items suffered damage, but remained identifiable. Like we stated, the appliances could still be seen. A telephone repairman who came to fix the lines told the Sodders that the lines had been cut, not burned. Besides, electrical Christmas lights in the home had continued to shine even as the fire consumed the house. Would they have done so if the fire had been electrical in origin? I say not, young sir. It would it, it is it would be very odd for an electrical fire to break out and not at least short circuit everything in the house. I mean, I don't know. I don't know if it would. I'm assuming it would do it in my house right now, much less a house built in the 40s. Yeah, I mean, how sophisticated could their electrical wiring be? So the block and tackle that was removed by the goofball would basically have been used to remove car engines. And he did plead guilty to taking that, but said he didn't see anything fire-related. He would admit, like we stated earlier, to cutting the wires to the house, believing them to be power lines, but 
to cut the phone lines, you got to use something to get 14 feet in the air. And then hang out off the pole to cut the wire with two feet hanging from the pole. The ladder is another big question. Why was it found 75 feet away? I mean, and then the balls. If, of, I mean, even if you are starting a, a house fire, like, why even care? Why do you care to get rid of it? What's the point? You know what I'm saying? Like, why even move it? Why not just start the fire and run? Right. Why well, take the time to move a ladder? And I can guarantee you in 45, it wasn't aluminum. Yeah. That sum of gun probably weighed a ton. No diggity. No doubt. Young Sylvia, three months after the fire, you know, found what they thought was the remnants of a pineapple grenade. But the thump, I guess the thump and the rolling, but she didn't hear an explosion. So that would lead sense to a failed Molotov cocktail more than a bomb. Now, a Charleston resident would report seeing the four youngest missing children with, a, with four Italian-speaking adults a week after the fire. A motel operator halfway between Fayetteville and Charleston said he saw the children the morning after the fire. A second search of the scene in 1949 uncovered a partially burned dictionary that had been kept in the children's bedroom and a small section of human vertebrae. The Smithsonian Institute in Washington, D.C. determined those bones showed no evidence of being exposed to fire and that they belonged to a man between the ages of 19 and 22. The Sodders found later that that bone had been taken from a grave in Mount Hope. Since the fire, I'm sorry, since the house was stated to have burned for half an hour or so, one would expect to find full skeletons of five children rather than only four vertebrae, that the Smithsonian doctor wrote. Twenty years after the fire, the Sodders received mail containing a picture of a young man they believed to be Lewis. In fact, the back of the photograph said, quote, Lewis Sodder, I love Brother Frankie. They were certain it was a picture of Lewis, who was supposed to have died in the fire at age nine, but they never found him. Some questions that have not been yeah, it answered. Was just, like, it, it was just a random, like, it wasn't addressed to anyone else. There was no return address. It was just out of nowhere, right? Right. I, that's what I'm to understand. Yes. Whew. Some questions that have not been answered. Who threw the fireballs? Because the bus driver said he saw fireballs being hurled at the house. Whose bones were found at the site? How did those bones get there? Who sent that photo? Who is the man in the photo? And then, supposedly, Mr. Tinsley just disappears. No one knows where he went to. And then, why, like you stated, why cow liver? Yeah. What's the significance of a cow liver? It don't don't make any sense. So if we look at it, if we dive down the abduction rabbit hole how did they get five children out of the house considering that the eldest was asleep on the sofa in the living room and the parents were asleep in a bedroom less than 20 feet away if they're being kidnapped surely they would have made a noise if it had been a stranger taking them or even a family member for that mate that point one of the chores the two boys were told to do was to attend to the cows and the chickens it is possible that all five of the children left the house to perform this. Basically, the two boys doing it and the three girls watching them do it. 
and then they were taken at that point away from the house. That is plausible. So George did not wait for reports of sightings to come in. Sometimes he made them himself after seeing a girl in a magazine picture of a young ballet dancer in New York City who looked like one of his missing daughters, Betty. He drove all the way to this girl's school where he repeated demands to see the girl. And the girl refused to even go talk to him. Yeah, that's some determination right there, man. He just sees one picture and he's gone. He is ready. He also tried to get the FBI to investigate, and supposedly uh, J. Edgar Hoover personally responded to his letters, stating, although I would like to be of service, the matter related appears to be of local character and does not come within the investigation jurisdiction of the Bureau. If the local authorities requested the Bureau's assistance, he added, he would, of course, direct agents to assist, but Fayetteville Police and Fire Fire departments declined to do so. Now, in August of 1949, George was able to persuade Oscar Hunter, a Washington, D.C. pathologist, to supervise a new search of the dirt at the house. After a very thorough search, artifacts including the dictionary we previously talked about and some coins were found. The bone fragments that we talked about, the vertebrae, were sent to Marshall T. Newman, a specialist at the Smithsonian and they put the upper limits at 17, I believe. And the top limit of the age should be about 22 since, quote, the centra, which normally fuse at 23, are still unfused. Thus, given the age range, it was not very likely that these bones were from any of the five missing children since the oldest Maurice had been 14 at the time. Newman, of course, added that their bones had no exposure to flame. Yeah, that's what I was about to say. Is, is there's also no evidence that those bones had been in a fire at all. So, what? How do you... Hmm. Newman states that he believes George disturbed some kind of grave when he bulldozed over the site. That seems possible. But, you know, we stated that the bones had supposedly come from a cemetery in Mount Hope, so that could not explain how the hell they had gotten there. Now, those bone fragments supposedly were returned to George in September of 49, but they are currently missing. Why would you return bones? That were not even his kids. (laughs) Yeah, that doesn't make sense at all. So, hey, man, I know you found these, so here here you go. Thanks for turning them in to us, but we're just going to give them back to you. Like, what? Now, this case would attract national attention. The West Virginia legislature held two hearings in 1950. Afterwards, Governor Oki L. Patterson and State Police Superintendent W.E. Burchett told the Sodders the case was, quote, hopeless and closed it at the state level. The FBI decided it had jurisdiction as a possible interstate kidnapping, but dropped the case two years afterwards following no credible leads. The Sodders would print up pictures of their children offering a $5,000 reward, which would double for information that would have settled the case for even one of them. In 1952, they put up the billboard at the side of the house. It would in time become a landmark for traffic through Fayetteville on U.S. Route 19, today U.S. Route, or I'm sorry, today State Route 16. 
The family's efforts soon brought another reported sighting of the children after the fire. Ida Crutchfield, a woman who ran a Charleston hotel, claimed to have seen the children approximately a week afterwards, stating, quote, I do not remember the exact date. The children had come in around midnight with two men and two women, all of whom appeared to be of, quote, Italian extraction. Extraction. That's what she said. Italian extraction? When she attempted to speak to the children, one of the men looked at her in a hostile manner, turned around, and began to rapidly speak in Italian. Immediately, the whole party stopped talking to her. She recalled that they left the hotel early the next morning. Investigators do not, however, consider her story to be credible, as she had only first seen photos of the children two years after the fire, five years before she came forward. George followed up leads in person traveling to where the tips were coming from. A woman from St. Louis, Missouri, claimed Martha was being held in a convent there. A bar patron in Texas claimed to have overheard two other people making incriminating statements about a fire that happened on Christmas Eve in West Virginia. None of these panned out. When George heard later that a relative of Jenny's in Florida had the children they, that looked similar to his, the relative had to prove the children were his own before George was satisfied. Can't bl- you can't blame him for that. I mean, he's desperate to find his kids, man. Now, in 67, he would travel to Houston. A woman there had written to the family saying that Lewis had revealed his true identity to her one night after having too much to drink. She believed that he and Maurice were both living in Texas somewhere. However, George and his son-in-law, Grover Paxton, were unable to speak with her. Police there were able to help them find the two men she had indicated, but they denied being the missing sons. Paxton said, said later, quite many years later, that he doubted the, the sighting at all. Now, they would receive another letter in 67 that they believed was the most credible evidence that at least Lewis was still alive. One day, Jenny found in the mail a letter to address to her postmarked in Central City, Kentucky, with no return address. This was the picture of the young man around 30, which resembled Lewis and had on the back the Lewis Soder, I Love Brother Frankie. Also said, little boys, A90132 or 35. What? Yeah, I don't understand that whole. What does that? What the hell does that mean? What could it represent? I couldn't find anything on that. Yeah. It's, it's too long to be a zip code or a postal code. Yeah, and there's an A in there, and there's the word or and 35. It's. I. That doesn't make any sense. And who would send that and why? With no return address, nothing. Just to give him a little hope? Let's say if it is him, why do that? Why? why? But if it's not him, that's just mean as shit yeah. to do that to somebody. But let's just say it is him. Why Why not reach out further? Why not come forward and be like, Mom, I'm alive. Like, Please help me. Well, as a result of this picture... They're going to hire another private detective to go to Central City and look into the look into this picture, try to find out what's going on. But that private investigator is never heard from again. He gone like a part in a dust storm. He took the money and ran. Yep. Or 
something. He ran into something in the Central City. That convinced him to get the hell out of Dodge. Or took him the hell out of Dodge. Took him off this planet. But since then, he has never been seen nor heard from again. So there's a disappearance after the disappearance. That's that's fucking that's that's insanely strange. Now, in late 1968, uh, George admitted to the Charleston Gazette Mail that the lack of information had been quote like hitting a rock wall. We can't go any further. End quote. He nevertheless vowed to continue. Quote: Time is running out for us. He admitted in another interview around that time. But then did state, quote, but we only want to know if they did die in the fire. We want to be convinced. Otherwise, we want to know what happened to them. Unfortunately, George died in 1969. Jenny and her surviving children, except John, who never talked about the night of the fire, except to say that the family should accept it and get on with their lives, continued to seek answers to their questions. Well, that's kind of strange. Mm-hmm. Maybe. What, 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 what does he know? That's what I'm thinking. Why Why all of a sudden is he going against the family? I mean, why is he the one that's like, hey, let's just move on, guys? That's strange. After George's death, Jenny stayed in the family home, putting up fencing around it and adding additional rooms. For the rest of her life, she wore black in mourning and tended the garden at the site of the former house. After her death in 1989, the family finally took the weathered billboard down so i stated in the opening it was like 50 years so it's more like just a little over 30 but still it's a long time so as of 2015 sylvia Sauter paxton the youngest in the family is the only surviving Sauter sibling who was in the house on the night of the fire which she says is her earliest memory quote i was the last one of the kids to leave home she and her father often stayed up late talking about what might have happened. Quote, I've experienced their grief for a long time. However, she still believes that her siblings survived that night and quietly assists with efforts to find them and publicize this case. Her daughter in 2006 stated, she promised my grandparents she wouldn't let the story die, that she would do everything she could. Now, Web Sleuths has taken this to a exponential level, and there are many, 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 many threads that dive into it. There are a lot of people in there that state that they believe that the children did, in fact, die in 1945. George Bragg, a, lo- a local author who wrote about the case in a 2012 book, West Virginia's Unsolved Murders believes that John was telling the truth in his original count when he said he tried to physically awaken his siblings before fleeing the house. He allows that the conclusion may still not be correct. Quote, logic tells you they probably did burn up in the fire, but, but you can't always go by logic. Stacy Horn did a segment on the case for NPR around the 60th anniversary in 2005, also believed the children's death in the fire is most plausible. She noted that the fire had continued to smolder all night after the house collapsed and that two hours was not enough time to search the ash thoroughly. Even if it had been, the firefighters may not have known what to look for. 
However, she said, there is enough genuine weirdness about the whole thing that if someday it is learned that the children did not die in the fire, I won't be shocked. And that's all there is. I mean, there's a bajillion rabbit holes you can dive down, and if you're interested in it, you're going to lose a lot of your time. But I suggest you jump on Web Sleuths and do a search for the Sodder children. Well, there's just a lot of unanswered questions to I mean so much of this doesn't make sense like we still don't know why the fire started yeah they've never come out and said what the cause of it was well this just dawned on me it said that part of the roof which was tin was found in the fire if you're throwing say Molotov cocktails on a tin roof it's not going to cause the the house to burn down True, but, and there's there was also no reports of an explosion. Right, which kind of so, rules out the pineapple grenade. Yeah, that does rule out the pineapple grenade, but I'm talking just, and how do you, there's no trace of these children found. None. No dental, re- no teeth, no bones large enough to test. And I'm sure since they've been, the family's kept it alive all these years, that if anything was ever found, they could have done DNA well, sequencing on it to see if they were relatives I mean, of survivors. Mrs. Sauter is going to claim that she is going to find appliances from her kitchen intact in the rubble. Still identifiable, not melted, not charred. So how's there going to be a fire strong enough to incinerate five human bodies to the point where there is no physical evidence whatsoever left behind? Yet, you can identify an appliance. That makes no sense. I mean, we, we do have the... We do have the sightings of the children. We do have the the pictures. We do have... I mean, but who's going to want to kidnap them? And for what purpose? Well, on that avenue, they said that he had pissed off the wrong people in the Sicilian mob. Mm-hmm. And that this was their way of... Mm-hmm. I read somewhere, quote, not quote, but there was a quote in there that said that someone had made the statement along the lines of, you have disgraced the mob, and we will take your children to make you suffer. Yeah, and like it was, there, there was questions that maybe it was extortion, that the mob took them for, for ransom, but there was never any ransom demands. And he said he, the 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 salesman said that they they were going to pay for his his remarks about Mussolini. Mussolini's dead. Mussolini had died that April. Why still care about something Mussolini? Something someone said about Mussolini when Mussolini himself was dragged through the streets and hanged. Yeah, I didn't understand the the whole Mussolini avenue either. I mean, this is an odd one. What? <laughs> Oh, we say that this, weekly. This podcast? This is an odd one? No. But, I mean, I would love to hear other people's opinion on it. That's what I would love. Every time you listen to our episode, I would love to hear what you think happened. We've had some really good insight, really good comments on some of our cases. But they're always the same. It's like, well, your guess is as good as mine. Well, no, yeah, no shit. Nothing, nothing can be answered. This is a very, very strange mystery that has 
been a popular mystery for a long time, and we are certainly not going to be the ones to solve it. No. Unfortunately, unless you get a deathbed confession that they were kidnapped, this case won't be solved because there's just no evidence. Well, I mean, hell, at this point, there's no one for deathbed confessions. Yeah, everybody's dead. Everybody's dead. That that has uh that that ship has sailed, unless the youngest daughter, knew, and her children, and her children, or the other grandchildren know something, but they're not willing to say. Other than that, we're not going to get an answer to this. No, unfortunately, you are correct, sir. And but to me, when I look at that picture that claims to be him, to claims to be Lewis, I just don't see it. I didn't. I don't see it. No, I, but I mean. It, but, yeah, it is much later in his life, but at the same time... But if I'm looking through it from the lens of a father... You would want to Desperately believe. trying to answer questions about his son being missing all these years, and or perhaps dead all these years. Here's a good chance you can convince me real quick that that's him. Because that would give me hope, hope beyond hope, that they're at least alive and well. I would like to know the reason why the picture was sent, especially if it was really not him. If it's not him, why send that picture? Are you just fucking with them, just trying to make them hurt? Yeah, that's a cruel all over ass. Again? Yeah, definitely cruel, cruel shit. And if you are wondering where you can express your comments on this case, most everyone will do it on our Facebook page because our other social media does not lend too well to expressing <laughs> theories. I would love to do a poll, but again, we don't get that many responses, but, yeah. which is fine. But I just want to hear some opinions because I'm, 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 I'm just... I'm, He's fresh out of ideas. I'm lost, man. I just... It's such a sad thing. And losing five children at once. Yeah. Regardless if they died in the fire, or regardless if they were kidnapped, regardless of anything, they they were gone. They lived the rest of their life without their children. Well, I think the biggest thing is they lived without knowing. You know, either A, they did perish and they could have some closure in the fact that they did perish, or I think the unknown is what really, especially the mom, she dressed in black the rest of her life. Yeah. And in our in our many attempts at doing a podcast we've seen that before on several occasions that the people that are left behind are just wanting the answer they were they're they're even they're at to the point in their mourning that they're going to actually be relieved to know that they were dead yeah like it would actually make them feel better which is a strange strange thing to say but truth be told, I mean, honestly. Yeah. Like, I don't have to worry that they were sex trafficked. I don't have to worry that they were sold into slavery. I don't have to worry that they were tortured by the mafia. I just know that they died in that fire. As tragic as it may have been, at least I know that they their suffering was over long before ours was. Yeah, this is just an odd, odd case, and there's theories abound. And, and to be honest with you... I don't really have a specific theory. I just, I'm of the camp of, at this point, I hope, and this is 
morbid, but I almost hope that they did perish in the fire. Well, I'm going to go opposite. I don't know. I don't really have a theory either. I just don't. I believe that they did not perish in the fire. There would have been some evidence. Yeah, I mean, the lack of evidence speaks volumes. What happened to these children? I could not possibly tell you. I don't know if they were kidnapped. I don't know if they ran away. I don't know if... I don't know anything other than the fact that I believe that they did not perish in the fire. If they had, there would be something left behind. Yeah, because the fact that the appliances are still recognizable, I think, leads credence to that, that you would have found something. You're not going to find organs. People that keep saying, well, we found this organ. You're not going to find an organ. You know, but you would have found bones. They definitely found the beef liver. Well, I don't think that was found there. I think Mr. Morris was a dumbass. And that doesn't make any sense either. I'm going to try to make the family feel better. By putting a beef liver in a, a tin box yeah, and burying it. Beef liver in a lunch box and burying it. Like, what? At what point was that a good idea? Yeah, like, oh, oh, I feel so much better that I found my son's heart in a box. Like, then it'd be like, well, how the fuck did he get in the box? Like, somebody murdered him then. Now we know it was... Because a fire's not going to just consume everything and leave a heart. Nor nor a uh, mailbox. Nor a lunchbox. (laughs) I just... I don't know. All right, recommendations. I recommend a book that I've read before, but I'm starting to read again. It's called Final Exits. The Encyclopedia of How We Die. Because I'm terrified of death, so I'm trying to desensitize myself to the idea. But it is pretty good. Hold on while I'm trying to get the name of the author. Well, I'm going to recommend while you look for that. Go for it. The West Virginia Unsolved Mysteries book that we referenced in the, the case here. Um, I think that is that author did a good job, and he puts forth a lot of... Uh, credible facts and it will also lead you to probably giving us some more recommendations out of the great state of west virginia we did we're we're gonna we need to really buckle down in 2021 and try to cover a case from states that we haven't covered yet we have done a bunch from canada we've done a bunch from california we've done a bunch from texas we've done a bunch from georgia and north carolina we need to expand our horizons and look into some little known let's get into some idaho let's get into some montana north dakota yeah no i think we did well south dakota was arnold and ruby yeah get into some wisconsin some some connecticut's you know let's just try to get something from every state the book final exits the illustrated uh encyclopedia encyclopedia of how we die is by an author named michael Largo, and he also has another book I've read of his called um, Genius and Heroin. Yeah? And it's a, <laughs> it's about uh, basically how famous people died. Oh, yeah. Heroin's there. Yeah, so it's like Kurt Cobain and Tennessee Williams choking on a freaking uh, eye drop cap, all that stuff. Well, you got anything else there, Slappy? I'm just going to make sure I got the book name correct. Yep. Genius and Heroin. Michael Largo. Yep. Well. The Illustrated Catalog of Creativity, Obsession, and Reckless Abandon Through the Ages. 
check them out and deuces. <laughs>